The next foundational question related to science and faith that we want to consider here is this. Is science at war with Christian theism? The idea that there exists a perpetual and unavoidable conflict between science on the one hand and religion on the other is a pervasive one in our culture, often being propagated both by our secular media industry and by our secular educational system. It's not uncommon to hear today's spokespersons and popularizers of science representing the relation between science and faith as zero-sum. The more science advances, the further faith retreats. There exists today widespread perception that ever since the birth of modern science, religion and science have been at war, and that religion has been losing. The history of science is very often told from this conflict perspective. The official story goes something like this. Prior to the scientific revolution, humanity was intellectually imprisoned in an age of religion and superstition. But with the dawn of the age of science, mankind threw off the shackles of religion and became men of science rather than men of faith. The warfare model of the history of science and faith was popularized by two late 19th century works. The first is that of John William Draper, who published his History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science in 1874. And the second is that of Andrew Dixon White, who published his History of Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom in 1896. In his book, Draper argues, quote, Christianity and science are recognized by their respective adherents as being absolutely incompatible. They cannot exist together. One must yield to the other. Mankind must make its choice. It cannot have both, end quote. So thanks in large part to these popular works, the warfare model of science and religion has become ingrained into the secular narrative in the West. Yet over the last century, historians and philosophers of science have come to realize that the warfare narrative of science and faith is a myth. It's a piece of historical fiction. And the works of Draper and White have been exposed as revisionist misrepresentations of history. Since the second half of the 20th century, there's been a growing consensus of historians, sociologists, and philosophers that oppose the historical warfare narrative and who are instead telling a very different story about the rise of modern science and its relationship to Christian faith. The truth is that for the first 300 plus years, from the rise of science in the 1500s to the late 1800s, science and Christian faith were not enemies, they were allies. In fact, today we now know that far from being an impediment or enemy of science, belief in God and Christianity actually played a decisive role in the rise of modern science. Modern science began dramatically in 16th century Europe in a very short period of time. Historians have puzzled over the reason for the sudden rise of science in Europe at this period of history. Why did it happen then, and why did it happen there? Philosopher of science Stephen Meyer explains the puzzle when he writes, quote, The material necessities for conducting science existed in many well-developed cultures. The Egyptians erected great pyramids, palaces, and funerary monuments. The Chinese invented the compass, block printing, and gunpowder. The Romans built great roads and aqueducts. And the Greeks had great philosophers, some of whom studied nature extensively. Yet, none of these cultures developed the systematic methods for investigating nature that arose in Western Europe between about 1500 and 1750." End quote. So why then, and why there? Well, in answer to this question, many historians have pointed to the distinctly Christian beliefs that were prevalent in Europe 
prior to the rise of modern science. Christianity provided the intellectual presuppositions that were necessary ingredients for the scientific revolution. Some distinctly Christian beliefs that were crucial to the rise of science include the linear direction of time, the creator-creation distinction, the goodness of the material world, the contingency of the world, the rational intelligibility and order of nature, the unity of nature, and the accessibility of nature to the human mind. These theological convictions provided the soil from which modern science sprang. Philosopher Elvin Plantica writes, quote, Modern Western empirical science originated and flourished in the bosom of Christian theism and originated nowhere else. The fact is, it was Christian Europe that fostered, promoted, and nourished modern science, end quote. The warfare or conflict revisionist history of science and faith makes Christianity the enemy of science. But the truth of the matter is that modern science is itself a legacy of Christianity rather than its enemy. And it wasn't just the intellectual structure that Christianity provided for science, but the institutional structure as well. Although it's largely forgotten today, the university was a Christian invention of the Middle Ages. Before the year 1500, over 60 universities were established in Western Europe, institutions that were crucial to scientific research and the propagation of ideas. Moreover, virtually all of the great scientists and mathematicians of the first several centuries of modern science were serious believers in God, who saw no conflict between their scientific research and their faith. I mean, just to name a few, there's Bacon and Copernicus and Galileo and Descartes and Wilkins and Coates and Leibniz and Pascal and Kepler and Newton and Boyle and Euler and on and on and on. In fact, many of the greatest scientists conducted their scientific investigations as an act of faith. They believed that their science was being done in service to God. For example, Isaac Newton, one of the founders of modern physics and regarded by many as the greatest scientist who ever lived, wrote, quote, when I wrote my treatise about our system, I had an eye upon such principles as might work with considering men for the belief of a deity. And nothing can rejoice me more than to find it useful for that purpose." End quote. Newton was firmly convinced that scientific understanding of the workings of the universe served only to amplify the evidence of divine design. In the general scolium to what is perhaps the greatest work of science ever written, the Principia Mathematica, Newton unapologetically declares, quote, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, end quote. Now, Newton's views about the relationship between science and faith were representative of his time. Despite what you hear today, the truth is that the overwhelming majority of the greatest scientists of the first three centuries of the scientific revolution saw no conflict whatsoever between their science and their faith. Now, as evidence of a real conflict between science and faith, some point to the fact that certain early scientists, such as Bruno and Galileo, were persecuted by the Catholic Church precisely because of their scientific discoveries. But even this popular story is vastly overdone and widely exaggerated. Although it's true that these men were persecuted by the Catholic Church and Bruno was murdered by the Catholic Church, it was not simply because of their scientific views. Rather, it had at least as much to do with personality conflicts and clashes with standing religious and scientific authorities in the case of Galileo, and heretical Christian views in the case of Bruno, as it did with their science. The stories told today about these accounts are almost always caricatures 
of the actual events. So the idea that there has been a perpetual conflict between science and religion, or that Christianity was somehow an impediment to science, is a piece of historical revisionism. As philosopher Edward Fazer puts it, quote, the fabled science versus religion war is a myth. Indeed, one might think of it as the founding myth of modern secularism, with Galileo and Newton taking the place of Romulus and Remus, end quote. As we've seen, empirical science was birthed in the intellectual soil of Christianity, and the vast majority of scientists working during the first 300 plus years of modern science were theists, and most of those were committed Christian theists. Okay, so much for history, but what about today? Is it true that most scientists today are atheists? Or is it true that most scientists today lack a belief in God? No. Polling from the Pew Research Center in 2009 shows actually that a minority of scientists identify as atheists, and a majority believe in some kind of a god or universal spirit or higher power. In fact, the proportion of scientists who believe in God has not really changed over the last 100 years. And there have been plenty of outstanding scientists over the last century who have been serious believers in God, and many of those have been committed Christians. In his book, 100 Years of Nobel Prizes, published in 2005, Baruch Shalev reviews Nobel Prizes awarded between 1901 and 2000, and he finds that 65.4% of Nobel Prize laureates have identified as Christians. In comparison, just 10.4% of total prize winners have been atheists, agnostics, or freethinkers. When it comes to the Nobel Prize in science specifically, Christians over this period won a total of 72.5% in chemistry, 65.3% in physics, and 62% in medicine. Today, there are leading scientists around the world who hold religious beliefs and many prominent scientists who are committed Christians. Of course, the fact that a majority of scientists from the rise of modern science in the 1500s to the present day have believed in some kind of a god does not mean that science proves that God exists. Likewise, if in 20 years from now, the majority of scientists were atheists, this would not mean that science proves that God does not exist. And this for the simple fact that physical science can never prove nor disprove the existence of God. To understand why, we need to ask the question, what is science? Although this seems like a simple question, the word science is one that has proven notoriously difficult to define. Nevertheless, I think the basic definition of science offered by the Encyclopedia Britannica is adequate. Science is any system of knowledge that is concerned with the physical world and its phenomena, and that entails unbiased observations and systematic experimentation. Now, with this definition of science, I think it's easy to see why science, in principle, can neither confirm nor disconfirm God's existence. Science, by definition, is a system of knowledge concerned with the physical world. But God, by definition, is not a physical being and he doesn't inhabit the physical world. Modern empirical science is a rational tool that's been designed by human beings for a very specific purpose. That purpose is to study particular aspects of the physical universe. It just follows from this that whatever is not part of the physical universe will be beyond the reach of science. And as we saw in the last episode, there are serious limits to what science can do. There are certain restrictions on the kind of knowledge that we can gain by means of the physical sciences. And strictly speaking, whether God exists is not a scientific question. 
It's a philosophical question. And in order to answer the question of God's existence, we'll need to consult a rational tool that has broader application than that of empirical science, one that allows us to consider all being as such, and not just particular aspects of physical beings. Of course, this is not to say that modern empirical science has no bearing or relevance to the question of God's existence. It certainly does. Science can be used to support or provide evidence for a premise in a philosophical argument for God's existence. And we'll see how science can function in this way when we look at some arguments for the existence of God in the coming episodes. So modern science is merely a method or tool that allows us to acquire data and to gain knowledge about certain aspects of the physical universe. Now, I think it's an obvious fact, but it's important to note that as a tool or method, science may be used effectively to acquire data, but it does not interpret the data. The facts, data, principles, and laws of science require interpretation. That is to say, science doesn't actually say anything. Scientists do. It's the scientists and the philosophers who interpret the data, who make assumptions, and who construct theories. Science itself is neutral. This is important to keep in mind because very often when scientists apply interpretations to the data, they go well beyond the domain of science and venture into the domain of philosophy. For example, modern physics tells us that all material things are made of atoms. Now, some have interpreted this fact of science to mean that because all material things are made of atoms, material things are therefore nothing more than collections of atoms. It may seem to us that there are things in nature of distinct kinds, people, dogs, trees, but in actual fact, there are only atoms arranged people-wise, atoms arranged dog-wise, and atoms arranged tree-wise. The only thing that exists in the material world, some claim, are atoms in various combinations. Now, obviously, this is a claim or an interpretation that goes well beyond the standard model of particle physics. It is, in fact, a philosophical interpretation of the science called atomism. Scientists make claims all the time that go beyond the actual science. Just because a person has expertise in some field of science does not mean that the person has expertise in philosophy. In fact, scientists often make poor philosophers. As I noted in the last episode, because of the science worship that has gripped our culture, scientists are very often called by the media to speak on issues that go well beyond the domain of physical science well beyond the domain of their expertise. The science versus interpretation of science distinction is important to keep in mind because although, as we've seen, there is no deep essential conflict between modern science and the core of Christian theism as such, there is an essential conflict between certain philosophical interpretations of the results of modern science and Christian theism. The real conflict is between two mutually exclusive philosophical worldviews that of theism on the one hand and naturalism on the other. So let me define some terms here. By the term worldview, I just mean a kind of total way of looking at the world and at ourselves as part of the world. In this sense, Christianity obviously qualifies as a worldview. The word naturalism has become a broad and nuanced term with a lot of subcategories today, but I'm using the term in a more simplistic way. Naturalism, again, as I'm using the word, is simply the view that the natural world is all there is. There is no transcendent, supernatural, creator God. For the Christian theist, ultimate reality is a creator God 
who brought the natural world into existence from nothing and sustains it in being. As the first line of the Bible declares, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For the naturalist, ultimate reality is just the natural world, or some fundamental part of the natural world. Or as the late Carl Sagan so eloquently put it in the opening of that popular 1980s television series Cosmos, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. So despite the secularist portrayal of perpetual war between science and religion, the actual war is between competing philosophical worldviews and is not essentially a scientific or religious conflict at all. Now, on occasion, you'll even find secular scientists admitting this publicly. For example, in a well-known passage, the evolutionary biologist Richard Lewontin candidly confessed, quote, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science, in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes, to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. End quote. Since these central claims being made by theism and naturalism are philosophical in nature, they are beyond the reach of the physical sciences as such to adjudicate. But as we've seen, science can play a role here by supporting or providing evidence for premises in philosophical arguments for theism or for naturalism. Part of the apologetical task, then, is to show ways in which the findings of contemporary science better support the philosophical claims of theism over that of naturalism. This is a kind of project, for example, that Alvin Plantica engages in his book, where the conflict really lies, science, religion, and naturalism. There he defends the thesis, quote, there is superficial conflict, but deep concord between science and theistic religion. But superficial concord and deep conflict between science and naturalism, end quote. In the following episodes, we'll look at some of the reasons and arguments that support this claim as we review classical and contemporary arguments for the existence of God.